Well, hi, everybody. I want to add my welcome to Janet's welcome. My name is Melissa C. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I live in New York. And um, yeah, it's definitely, it's a pleasure to be here. And like Janet said before, um, this really is the thing that I, one of the things I love to do most in the world is um, talk about recovery, talk about the 12 steps, talk about the miracle that has happened for me um, through this program, through these 12 steps. And, um, you know, and I, I say like when, um, you know, our solution is, is that God has entered our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. And I think when God enters your heart and lives there, um, the things that you long to do, the things that are your greatest pleasure are, are different. And so this really is my great pleasure. I, in a million years prior to getting recovered, it would not have been my great pleasure to um, talk about this. My, my great pleasure would have been, I don't know, something else that was totally focused entirely on me. And this really, um, I think like oftentimes when I do my gratitude list in the morning, some of the things that I see on my gratitude list, even that shocks me because a lot of the times my, my greatest like things that I feel the most grateful for is the recovery that I start to see happen in other people. Like it's just, you know, and I think that's why we're both passionate about this is that this thing that has occurred can be replicated over and over and over again. It's not, um, it's not reserved for the select few. It's for anybody who does these steps, right? Who really submits to God um, and does their best to live in agreement with these steps can too have this transformative experience. So with that, I'm going to jump into um, the topic tonight, which is step seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. And so I think, you know, it's important to talk for a moment about step six, um, because every step I'd say is really reliant on the step before it being done thoroughly, completely, because what happens when we do the step thoroughly and completely before it, I really think about it like a staircase. And while you're going up steps, there's when you when you are one step ready to take the next one, your foot is in the air and you really want to put it down in the right direction. And that's what it feels like to me when you thoroughly take the step that came before. So let's look at step six for one moment, right? I was willing to have these defects removed. That's what step six is, like really willing, like you want them removed. And then you recognize, wait a minute, I'm powerless to the actual removal of them. I can want it, I can be willing, but I can't do it, you know? And I think about it like this, I, I can't make myself no longer feel something. I can desire that the feeling be removed. I can act in ways that are in agreement with what it would look like if I no longer feel that. But the actual removal of a feeling, just like a defect, I can't do it on my own. I don't have that power. So then what do we do then, right? What can we do if we can't, if we're powerless to it? Well, 
that's where step seven comes in, right? Is that we have humility and we ask God to remove our shortcomings. And I love, you know, it says all throughout that step seven emphasizes humility. And this is something that we often fight against. You know, it seems to go against our very nature, our need for power and self-importance. Um, you know, and and I used to think, well, humility must mean like that um, I think horribly about myself. Like I don't, I think I'm terrible and that must mean I'm humble. And that's not what humility is. Humility is not thinking less of myself. It's not thinking that I'm less. It's actually thinking less often about myself. It's having less time where I'm sitting and having a good think about me. But it does not mean that my opinion of myself is horrible, right? It's just that I'm not walking around overly concerned with everyone's opinions of me, right? So step seven emphasizes humility and we fight against it. And what is humility then? Uh, true humility is understanding my strengths and my weaknesses. In step five, in the AA 12 and 12, we learn the definition of humility. And I, it's one of my favorite definitions um, of the book. It says in step five in the AA 12 and 12, it's on page 58. It is a clear recognition of what and who we really are followed by a sincere attempt to become what we can be. And I just think that's a perfect definition of what it means to have humility. That I can see what I am, I'm willing to really look at it honestly, and I want to be better. I long to be a better version of me. And then, you know, and so in this case, what am I looking at? I'm looking closely at my weaknesses or my defects, the very things that are keeping me blocked off from a higher power. And I needed these things and I need these things to be removed so I can get a better connection with God. They're in my way of feeling a connection with God. And I saw in my inventory that my defects were keeping my resentments alive. And that always drove me back to the food. And some people, you know, they, they, they call these their triggers, the things that keep your resentments alive. And usually when people point to other people and say, well, they're my, they trigger me. Or when they do that, that triggers me. And, you know, um, that's really where we need humility even more. Because people are not my triggers. People are people, right? And I can't walk around avoiding people and places and situations because I have determined that they're the cause of what makes me resentful, right? That's, that is not living in agreement with God's will for me. That's blaming. That's pointing fingers and blaming. And if what we're really after is true freedom, well, if I am feeling like I have to avoid people, places, and situations because I'm afraid of how that's going to make me feel, then I'm really in bondage. And the food could be down, but I'm still in bondage. I'm in bondage to other people. 
and I'm in bondage to places and situations. In page uh, 70 in the AA 12 and 12, it says this, that indeed the greater attain, the, indeed the attainment of greater humility is the foundation principle of each of AA 12 steps. For without some degree of humility, no alcoholic can stay sober at all. Nearly all AAs have found too that unless they develop much more of this precious quality than they may be required just for sobriety, they still haven't much chance of becoming truly happy. Without it, they cannot live to much useful purpose or in adversity be able to summon the faith that can meet any emergency. So that to me does not sound like I'm walking around with everyone else being my trigger. If I can't meet, right, any emergency, I need to be able to meet any emergency. So, you know, here it says like step one was where we first begin to have a real relationship with humility. And for myself, I saw I could not remove my desire to eat compulsively. I wanted very much but I could, had no control to remove the desire. I knew I was hopelessly beaten by the food. You know, when, um, you know, for those of you who don't know my story, this disease at the height of it, I was over 300 pounds and I could not stop eating despite all the physical consequences and the greatest desire. I still couldn't stop. Um, I was being crushed by morbid obesity. And my last binge, I ate and my mouth was bleeding. And I continued to chew and swallow with uh, like bloody food in my mouth. And it was disgusting and I still couldn't stop. So I had a strong desire to stop. I just couldn't do it. I visit, I just could not do it. And um, I knew I was hopelessly beaten by the food. So what did I do? Well, I began with a cry for help. I mean, that's really when I reached the end of the end where I was done doing OA light. Because before this, I had done the OA light plan. Basically, I wanted recovery without really doing very much at all. And that's really what it was. I wanted to do the bare minimum. But when I reached a point of true humility, I cried out for help. Asking for help was my first act of humility. And it was asking for help without spelling out how I wanted that help to come. It was God help me and I meant it, right? Um, and what happened was I was given help and I learned food was what I used as a substitute for connection. I was given this concept of abstinence. I was told, you know, basically a framework of, of how, to, how to be abstinent. And I got a food plan and I did everything in my human power to live in agreement with that food plan. And that's really where it started for me. Like I, you know, it meant I went to the supermarket, I bought the groceries and I got the scale and I made a plan, whether I wanted to do it or not, whether I felt like I could do it or not, I did everything in my human power that I could. And I did this with the understanding that I needed God to remove the desire, but I was going to have to cooperate, right? I was going to have to do the legwork um, to take actions that would support the desire being removed. 
I had to be willing to do whatever was necessary in order to have the desire to be met. And well, to me, step seven is very much the same. In step six, I became willing to have God remove these defects of character and all of the things that were causing me misery and pain and that were bringing me back to the food. I wanted God to remove them. And I demonstrated this willingness to have my defects removed by practicing a new way of living. One thing that I was taught to do that I, I think is very you know, effective is that I looked at my defects. I took my defects, I put them down on paper, and I wrote out specifically how they looked in my life. What actions I was taking when I was living in the grip of my defects. And then on the other side of the paper, I wrote down what it would look like if I didn't have these defects. And it kind of reminded me of a food plan, right? Only now it was my behavior plan. And I was practicing behaviors that were foreign and they felt awkward, just like my abstinence was in the beginning, foreign and awkward. And I would say, just like my abstinence, it even made my stomach growl. Like sometimes the things I felt like I had to do made my stomach churn felt sick to my stomach to like not get to do what I wanted to do or have to practice doing something that I did not want to do. And step seven tells me that I can't remove these defects. That's going to be up to God to do, but I can cooperate with God. So let's focus some more on this concept of humility since it's such an important concept of step seven. And I'd say, you know, it's gotten a bad rap in this world. Most buy into this idea of using our primary instincts to secure our positions in life. And I, I was thinking about how people refer to their jobs and careers as making a living. Like they call that like what you do to make a living. And while there's nothing wrong with material well-being, right? In fact, it says on page 71 that we don't enter into debate with, and with many who still so passionately cling to the belief that to satisfy our basic natural desires is the main object of life. But we are sure that no class of people in the world ever made a worse mess of trying to live by this formula than alcoholics. So my when I say I make a living, I can no longer refer to that as by the income that I bring into my house. What I like to say about making a living is how do I live in agreement with God's will for me? That's what tells me if I am making a living or not. Um, and, you know, we are cautioned that material success is not always in our own best interest. It makes, you know, it really makes me think about Bill Wilson and how in Bill's story, when he was having tremendous material success and was worshiping the almighty dollar, he was not living his best life, right? He was in this sumptuous apartment he describes at the height of his success and his drinking took on more serious proportions. And yet compare that to page 15 of Bill's story where it says, my wife and I abandon ourselves with enthusiasm to the idea of helping other alcoholics to a solution of their problems. I was fortunate, I love this part. I was fortunate for my old business associates remained skeptical for a year 
and a half during which I found little work. And, you know, it continues to say that I soon found that when all other measures fail, work with another alcoholic would save the day. Many times I've gone into my old hospital in despair and talking to a man there, I would be amazingly lifted up and set on my feet. It is a design for living that works in rough going. So listen to how he describes making a living. His design for living is about helping others. Now, there, trust me, there's nothing inherently wrong about making money. Like, I don't want anybody to say, well, Melissa says we all have to be poor. That is not true. I would be, I'd be a liar, right? And that is not the truth. But we have to have perspective. We must have perspective on this. And, and it goes on on page 71 to say, we had lacked the perspective to see that character building and spiritual values have to come first. And that material satisfactions were not the purpose of living. Quite characteristically, we had gone all out in confusing the ends with the means. And I would say that oftentimes when we're living in ways that we believe the ends justify the means, what does that really mean? It means that we are doing things that are outside our own ideals but we're justifying them because we have a plan that we want to come to fruition. And that's where they say, oh, the ends justify the means. And when I, you know, when I hear that, what it means is that I'm being dishonest, I'm being self-centered, and I'm fear-driven, all in my attempt to get my ultimate design met, not necessarily God's, mine. You know, so let's talk about having humility to ask for dishonesty and selfishness to be removed. In page 72, it says, we never thought of making honesty, tolerance, and true love of man and God the daily basis of living, right? And again, it talks about what does it mean to have a living, right? having honesty, tolerance, true love of man and God. And the, and the 12 and 12 refers to this as, um, if we don't think about making honesty, tolerance, and true love of man our basis, then we have a lack of anchorage to any permanent values, blindness to the true purpose of our lives. So if I lack anchorage to any permanent values, it means I don't have a secure hold on the things that are really important, right? And what are the things that are really important? Honesty, tolerance, loving man, and God. Those are the things that are most important. We're constantly being instructed about the importance of honesty. Always. Why? Why? Well, because for us, we don't believe the ends justify the means. Because we took step three. And in step three, we turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. We learned that in the third step promise, that if I stay close to God, 
and perform his work well, then I'm going to get what I need, not what I demand. So we have to have a relationship with God. As addicts, that's our only chance. There are no other doors open to us. That's it. And how can we have a relationship unless we trust the very thing we want a relationship with? Right? Nobody can have a relationship with someone or something that they don't trust. That's, the, that's a very important requirement. In fact, relationships fall apart when you can't trust a person. When the trust is destroyed, it's pretty difficult to have a relationship. Well, if I want a relationship with God, I have to trust God, right? Um, and it says, you know, it says in the book that uh, all men of courage have faith. They trust their God. I have to trust God. Um, and so if I'm dishonest, I'm telling God I don't trust in him or his divine plan. I'm basically saying, God, get out of my way. I've got something better in mind. And I have to show tolerance. And what does that mean? It means reduced sensitivity. Not that I have to stomach with people, but I have to be less sensitive. I have to have a thicker skin. Why? Why do I have to have a thicker skin? Why do I have to be able to be less sensitive? Because Remember, we need to love people more. And if I am constantly getting offended, how can I love God's people? And the more I love God's people, his creations, the more I love the creator, right? The more I love what he creates, the more I love the creator. And likewise, for me, the more I love the creator, the more I love his creations. And I think about how we really do find happiness when we're anchored, when we're really attached to permanent values. Our lives depend on making God the daily basis of living. And this is what helps us discover our real purpose, which we know is to be useful. All right, so now we're gonna talk about fear of pain and problems, because that's the next thing that it goes into on page 74. And it says this, until now, our lives have been largely devoted to running from pain and problems. We fled from them as from a plague. We never wanted to deal with the fact of suffering. Escape via the bottle was always our solution. So a big part of step seven for me is the understanding that I only increase and prolong my pain when I try to avoid discomfort. And while I don't seek discomfort today, it's not like I'm on a quest to find ways that I can be uncomfortable and in pain, I don't really waste too much time and energy avoiding it either. I trust that God will be there through the painful times and the times of discomfort. On page 75, it says, failure and misery transformed by humility turn into priceless assets. You know, we hear, we heard story after story of how humility had brought strength out of weakness. And in every case, pain has been the price of admission 
into a new life. And so that tells me that if pain actually brings me into a new life, I don't necessarily have to be afraid of it because something good is going to come from it, right? No matter what problems might be, I trust that if it be God's will, that something good will come to fruition from it. And I think about it like this, like what are the things that give us greatest pleasure is being useful to other people. So I know that if I'm going to go through a difficult period, then it's going to have some capacity to be helpful for somebody else. And in using that to be helpful for someone else, it will actually give me peace. It will actually set me back on my feet. Right? That's our promise. So if all of our experiences can become vehicles that transport us into happier lives, then what happens is this. We begin to fear pain less and desire humility more than ever. That's what the book says. I'm going to fear pain less and desire to have more humility. And, you know, what I see is that oftentimes my discomfort is a signal. It's a message telling me that, well, either let go of an outcome or let go of an expectation, or sometimes the pain is signaling me then I actually have to take action, right? Sometimes the pain is like, mm, you're gonna need to do something different. And I often prolonged my misery because I was afraid of a possible outcome. I lived at times with my head buried in the sand. That was part of what it was like for me in the disease. I feared confrontation, I feared criticism. I lived like so many of us do, extreme denial, or complete obsession. I said I had two ways that I lived. I either completely ignored a problem, denied that I felt it, until it was the only thing I could see and feel, until it just overwhelmed me. So I went from denial to obsession and never in between. I could never seem to feel my way in between. Um, and what would happen is it would become so incredibly painful that I couldn't ignore it anymore and I would blow. I'd have like a major tantrum, a major blowout, or I would be so blindly attached to an outcome that was so clearly not aligned with God's will. While my head was buried in the sand, I had a way that it had to look, I had a way that it had to look, I had a way that it had to be. And then suddenly it was crushing that it wasn't that way. And I felt like God had failed me because he wasn't making what I was demanding come true, right? And so now let's compare this to the serenity prayer, right? Because the serenity prayer, we say it all the time. And, you know, by the way, it's the serenity prayer. It's not the denial prayer. And it's also not the self-will prayer, right? It's serenity. So serenity is not denial and it's not self-will. 
accept the things I cannot change, not ignore the things, not pretend that they're not there, accept them. The courage to change the things I can, right? What can I change? Not what is up to God to change and the wisdom to know the difference. And, you know, the key point is being capable of discerning what's changeable and what I am best to let be. And that's always the greatest obstacle. Like, what am I really supposed to do something or am I really supposed to just let it be? And here's what I've discovered. I might be able to change something, but if I can't maintain my serenity, then it may be something that I am best not changing, or that I really have no business in changing. And for the things that I either can't change or should not change, what I have learned is that I can feel sad and I can feel disappointed. And even the most intense feelings eventually pass and fade. So long as I actually feel them, experience them, and don't prolong them, right? I have an active part in them. And this is where we lean into God. This is for me where I lean into my higher power and rely on the support available. Because what I have found is that my creator puts people right in my path to help me bear the burden, to help me carry the load when the pain gets too great. God never has left me alone to feel it, you know, on my own, always has provided me with fellows, always provided me with people. And I have a a person that I know who says, um, thank you, God, for another opportunity for growth. She says, this is another growth opportunity, the painful things she knows is her own spiritual growth. And spiritual growth involves some discomfort. I'm not sure why, but I never seem to grow spiritually on the beach on vacation. I might feel close to God on his beautiful beach, looking at his creation, but somehow the most significant spiritual growth for me has often occurred in times when I am uncomfortable, when I'm experiencing some level of discomfort. Because what I find is that growing often means that I'm outgrowing something else. And I can feel the pressure of what I'm no longer able to stay confined within. I can feel it when I'm outgrowing something. Page 76 says this, living upon a basis of unsatisfied demands, we were in a state of continual disturbance and frustration. Therefore, no peace was to be had unless we could find a means of reducing these demands. So I prolong my own misery by focusing on how my demands are not being met and how things are not going my way. And we learn that we receive more peace when we actually allow our demands to become requests. And if I am bothered by things not going my way, what I was taught was, how about just stop having a way? You don't need to have to have a way about everything. 
And I can see how this works so much better in my relationships. I don't feel as resentful when my kids don't do what I want, when I actually stop wanting so much, right? When I stop being so attached to what I want. There was a time, you know, when I was owned by my kids' academic success. Like it was everything to me. It was my God. If they did well, it meant I was doing well. That's how I used to measure my own parenting. And, you know, I told myself that um, if they did well, then they would have perfect futures, easy paths. And I would say, you know, yeah, it's natural for us to want our family members' lives to be trouble-free. Yeah, we can kind of want that, perhaps, right? But if my own spiritual growth had occurs in times of discomfort, and I know that's true, then I must believe that the same is true for the people I love, that their own spiritual growth might actually involve discomfort. And it's selfish of me to want to skip that, their spiritual growth, because I'm uncomfortable when they're uncomfortable, right? That would mean that I'm putting my own comfort ahead of their own spiritual growth. And I love someone explained to me once, it's like a butterfly going into a cocoon. And me as a parent, I look at the caterpillar in the cocoon and it's gonna start coming out, right? And it's hard, that butterfly has to work at it and it looks painful. And I am this person who wants to take my fingers and crack open the cocoon, right? Open it up, make it easy for the butterfly. And anybody who knows anything about butterflies is, you actually will kill them if you do that. Because struggle is important for their own growth. They cannot survive without struggle. And as much as I hate to see the people I love struggle, I have to believe that if there's a struggle in store for them, that God has a plan and must believe in his plan. Um, I also thought that, um, that their struggles might embarrass me. I didn't want to be embarrassed by their struggles. I had this thought that it might put me out in some way, that it would make me look bad, that it would make me uncomfortable. And that's playing God, right? That's me playing God. And I have seen that saying things like, I can't be happy if, right? I've learned that if I say, I can't be happy if my kids don't X, Y, and Z, I can't be happy if my mother doesn't blank, my husband doesn't blank, my job doesn't blank means that I am relying on circumstances for my serenity. And we learned that that is not true for us. And, you know, does it sound like we don't have any standards anymore? No expectations for the people in our lives? Perhaps a bit. Maybe to other people, they would say, well, don't you think, you know, it's your job to make sure your kids get good grades or make sure that, you know, they do what they're supposed to do. No, it's my job to instruct them. 
but the outcome, right? Whether they follow through. And, you know, if it sounds like I don't have any standards or expectations, perhaps maybe a bit, but yet others meeting my demands and needs have, you know, have come at too great a price because my needs and my demands have been insatiable and they're too great to satisfy. It's an empty hole. Letting go and relying on God is what humility really is. And I can say that I am incapable of truly knowing what's the best plan. Some of the hardest experiences I've endured were actually beneficial. I'm a human with a very small, finite view. And what I get to see is one piece of a cosmic jigsaw puzzle. It's a great big jigsaw puzzle. And I'm a human and God gives me one piece at a time. Just a little piece. And I might look at a particular piece and it looks like a pretty pink piece. But it actually turns out to be the tongue of a ferocious tiger, right? Or this black piece that looks like it's nothing, right? It looks like it's just this dark little piece could turn out to be the beautiful fold in the wing of a gorgeous butterfly. And that's been my life. Some of the most horrible looking situations turned out to be gorgeous in the end. And I either trust God with the things that are bigger than me or I risk pursuing the wrong things. So step seven is a prayer. It's a request. I make of God and not a demand. And like all the prayers that seem most heartfelt for me, I personalize the prayers so that they're authentic requests. And when I ask God to remove my defects, I name the defect. And I add what I request to be replaced with, what I think that it might need to be replaced with. And, you know, and so the seven step prayer is, you know, my creator, I'm now willing that you should have all of me good and bad. I pray that you now remove from me every single defect of character, which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. So again, I'm leaving it up to God to remove the things that he has determined are not useful to me or to other people. Because remember, I can only see the jigs, the piece of the puzzle, and he's got the whole picture. Grant me strength as I go out from here to do your bidding. And, you know, I thought it might be a great way to end by reading the closing paragraph of step seven. And this one is actually in the OA 12 and 12, which we don't often crack open, but it's got some really great stuff in it. And this one I like. It's on page 56 in the OA 12 and 12. And it says, repeated practice of step seven enables us to form a working partnership with our higher power through which we are relieved of the defects that have blocked our effectiveness in the world. As we gain new humility and even greater freedom from our character defects, God's power flows more surely and freely through us, bringing healing to others as well as ourselves and drawing to us all the things which we once thought so hard to attain. Self-esteem, a feeling of usefulness, joy, strength to surmount difficulties, fellowship, and love. Our simple prayers, humbly spoken, 
are answered in wonderful ways as we open our lives to God's transforming power. And we find that once again, God does for us, which we could never do for ourselves. And with that, I will pass.